Hey weirdos, it's Riley speaking. Welcome to part two of our special presentation on the mysteries surrounding the Titanic, arguably the greatest naval disaster in history. Just wanted to let you know that we are aware that the audio on this broadcast isn't the best that it could be. If you already listened to part one, you know how it sounds, but we found that the subject matter was so compelling and the delivery was so amazing that we wanted to bring you this episode anyway. So please forgive the deficiencies and enjoy the ride. Let's do this. had a good week we're coming at you with part two of our well it was supposed to be one part now it's two part special with our special guest about the titanic dan sean talks so much folks we need to paint a picture for you he's actually chained us uh to our chairs in his basement vault he is not going to stop until he's done telling stories i don't know how many this is gonna be anyway welcome back sean thank you dan thank you rather we're gonna bring out the gimp any minute now before we before we proceed i think the question on um, my mind and sean's probably is is that a magnifying makeup mirror behind you dan that is a, a prop for a uh, yes it is a magnifying mirror that's broken it's smashed if you can see uh, that is a prop for a little uh, filmed bit that uh, I'm going to be. Uh, we did a dry run earlier today and it'll be filmed tomorrow. And I needed to look like it was a dilapidated office. Boy, does it. And it really looks like that. Well, it's, it was supposed to go to the garbage. It got dropped. You have so many books, Dan, which is. Yes. Awesome. I honestly did not know you could read. Um, so this is amazing. I've learned something too. All right, Sean, tell us more about the Titanic. Um, this is great. I am totally hooked, totally intrigued. Uh, well, I'm happy to. Uh, so when we last left off, we were talking about uh, the three people that had been on the ship who together had been in a couple of wrecks. Um, so now we're going to move on to a gentleman by the name of David Blair. Now, the original second officer, sorry, the the officer that's the famous second officer from the Titanic was a gentleman by the name of Charles Lightoller, but he was not the original uh, second officer on the Titanic. Why is he famous? Well, um, one, he survived, so he testified at both inquiries. He was the main character in the movie, A Night to Remember, based on the book that came out. It was a 1958 movie. Um, he He's the guy, if you remember the movie Titanic, the character, the James Cameron one, who kind of, when the captain seems paralyzed with fear he's the one that says shouldn't we get the women and children into the boats like he kind of took charge did that actually happen? some people say that captain smith did his duty other people say he had no idea what was going on and was pretty much useless uh so it depends uh who you talk to yeah i mean the titanic was captain smith's 
last voyage, not just because he died, but it was uh, it, it was supposed to be the last voyage he was on before he retired. He and he always took. He was so respected that he always took the the White Star ships out on their maiden voyage and he was actually referred to as the millionaire's captain because he was so popular with the you know the elite uh that they uh and walter lord who wrote a night to remember his grandparents traveled quite a bit uh and said that they would not go on a ship uh that wasn't captained by him so he was highly respected but he had never he has a famous quote when he was interviewed right before he went on the titanic um where they asked him to sum up his career. And he said, I, I'm afraid I don't make for a very good story, you know, because it's, it's been pretty uneventful. I've never been in a wreck or anything like that. Oh. Uh, and then of course, now he's probably, you know, other than fictional uh, sea captains, he's probably the most famous captain of a boat ever. Right. Yeah. So, um, so Charles Lightoller basically kind of took charge. He was one of the last people, officers on the boat he was actually survived on one of those collapsible boats that was upside down the entire time there was basically a bunch of guys oh man passengers survivors clinging to it and trying to balance it so it wasn't submerged or it didn't capsize uh and had to do that for you know you're talking it was three and a half four hours before the carpathia showed up uh it would have been the equivalent of minus five the water uh, degrees. So that's why people would die within 15 minutes, basically. Minus five, sorry, in the water or minus the air? It was minus five. The water. The, the water. Really? I didn't know. Water will change your body temperature more than any other medium. So if you are going into like minus five air, you won't get as cold as fast as you will in minus five water. Water takes your body temperature down like 18 times faster. Hmm. Yeah, that's why they put you in a cold bath if you're feverish. So, yeah, I mean, that's why people died so quick. The only exception being and the baker on the Titanic, which his name was Charles. I'm going to get his last name wrong, Jogren or something like that. Uh, and he basically thought he was going to die because he was a crew member. The ship's sinking, and he just basically went, screw it. So he got hammered. He just started drinking his face off. Uh, and he's the guy in the Titanic movie in the where, next to Kate and Leo when they're going down and he's hanging on the railing. That is supposed to be the baker. And he went into the water. He was one of the last people on the ship on the railing and survived for like a ridiculous amount of time, even though alcohol would thin your blood, right? Mm -hmm. um, and he he didn't die. Well, he, he basically I nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. He's like, you know, he's an anomaly or something, but he he survived and then ended up getting on like to one of the collapsibles and and survived the uh the disaster. Wow. But he was in the water like most people were dying within 15 minutes, half an hour tops. And he was in the water for something like an hour and a half or something ridiculous like that and and lived. I, I don't know this for sure, but when the, the boat went down and there's all these lifeboats scattered about, mm -hmm. were people swimming to the lifeboats trying to get in and they basically weren't letting them in because they would capsize? Like, were, were, were there some confrontations going on where people were trying to get out of the water into the boats and, you know? Yeah, so 
it was a pretty sad scene basically uh you know and there is that part in the movie where you know the the old rose is talking about you know how many people were in the water and none of the ships came back that actually happened uh there was one officer who was fifth officer low who basically tied together he emptied his boat uh, into another boat and then took all his passengers, put them in another light boat and then went back. But uh, there's a famous story with uh, the guy who was actually steering the Titanic at the time was a guy named quartermaster hitchens and he was in charge of the boat that Molly Brown, the unsinkable Molly Brown, who's played by Kathy Bates in the movie. Um, and they wanted to go back. She told him to go back and he basically said, it's our lives now, not theirs. Uh, which because the, the ships had rowed so far out because they were afraid of the suction. When the ship went down, they were afraid they of were course. going to suck down, which didn't actually happen because people, the baker basically said he stepped off the boat and didn't get his hair wet, which is bizarre. Um, so there wasn't a lot of suction. I don't know if that had to do with the fact that the ship actually had broken in half at that point under the water, but people didn't know that. Um, so it wasn't quite as big, but they were far enough back and some boats did go back, but, and this is horrible, but they, they waited until the screaming was so loud, uh, that they waited until the screaming subsided. Uh, so they knew people were dead, so they wouldn't get basically they basically wouldn't get attacked when they went there the onslaught of people uh there was a a third class passenger by the name of frankie goldsmith who was uh, a young boy and uh he was irish and he ended up settling in detroit and he settled very close to the baseball stadium tiger uh where the detroit tigers played and he said it was traumatizing to him because every time a home run was hit or something like that he would hear this huge crowd erupt and it would instantly bring him back to that night like basically oh it was that bad oh man so he um yeah, so they waited to answer your question, Riley. Yeah, they they waited, and then one boat went back and tried, but uh, there wasn't a lot of people pulled out of the water, and anyone who was pulled out of the water didn't live very long. They they were already well into the hypothermia by that point. Okay, mm-hmm. I wonder with the baker if the the alcohol did play a part in a almost mind over mattery type way, like it had relaxed him so much, maybe his heart wasn't beating as fast. So it slowed. It could be like I, it's something like look it up. It's uh, there's not there. Nobody seems to really have an explanation. One thing I will tell you, if you watch drunk history, there is an excellent uh, episode of drunk history where Chris Parnell from Saturday Night Live plays the baker. It's hilarious. Um, Oh, but it's it's about the baker surviving the sinking. But uh, nobody nobody really has like a scientific or medical explanation as for why he lived that I'm aware of. But yeah, so Charles Lightoller original, or sorry, the eventual second officer of the Titanic, the original uh, second officer of the Titanic was a gentleman by the name of David Blair. Um, So he was with the ship when it performed its sea trials, when they take the ship out and, you know, once it's all fitted and everything and see, you know, how it turns and make sure it's basically worthy uh, for the voyage. And at the last minute, the White Star Line decided that they wanted a little more experience among the 
officers uh, and the senior crew. So they reassigned Henry Wilde, who became the chief officer on the Titanic from the Olympic, and everybody was kind of knocked down a peg. And even though David Blair was the second officer, for some reason he was punted. Like he basically was booted off the uh, the Titanic, was told he wouldn't be making the voyage, which obviously worked out well for him. Uh, but at the time, mm-hmm. this was a very prestigious thing. Like, it was a big honor for these guys if you were, you know, uh, an officer and you know, to be involved in the maiden voyage of one of these ships. It was considered a huge honor. So he was devastated, basically. So he gets he gets kicked off. The ship goes, sinks, and all that's, you know, we know the rest of the story. Now, when the ship sank, uh, there were two inquiries, as I mentioned before, almost right away. There was an American inquiry about the sinking because American lives were lost and a British one to basically find out what happened. Now, one of the people that testified at both of these inquiries was the lookout in the crow's nest, Frederick Fleet. And I know I keep referring to the Titanic movie, but they get a lot of things right. And it's probably the most current thing, even though it's a 20 year old movie now in people's mind. He's the guy in the crow's nest that says he can smell ice and all that sort of thing. He's the guy who spotted the iceberg. Okay. And as I said, from the time they, he saw the iceberg to the time they hit, was 37 seconds. They didn't have a lot of time. Now, one of the things that he claimed, uh, Fleet, was that it could have been avoided if they had binoculars because it, it was very difficult that night because there was no moon and it was a calm seat. Now, you've seen pictures of like the sinking of the Titanic and it always drives me nuts, but there's always like the lifeboats and there's always waves and stuff. But the sea was extremely calm that night, which made it very, very difficult for them to even see icebergs because there was no breaking water at the base of the iceberg, right? Mm. And there was no moon reflecting off it. So there was base, essentially no light. Um, so he said if they had had binoculars, it would have made things much easier. And when the commission asked him, uh, you know, whether or not he'd seen the iceberg from far away, he said he might have seen it a bit sooner. And they said, how much sooner? And he wasn't the smartest guy on the planet. Uh, he, he basically said, they asked how sooner. He said, well, enough to get out of the way was his response. That's the best he could come up with. So they don't, on ships like that, they don't routinely have a searchlight at the bow sort of going over the water if they're in waters where there could be obstructions like that. Yeah, back then, the Titanic did not have a light okay. like that. Um, it was 1912, and the thing is, is uh, there's been varying reports that Bruce Esme made the captain go faster, but they weren't trying to break any speed records. They knew they weren't going to beat the Mauritania, um, but they did want to try and get in earlier, but there was tons of reports. This is documented of, of ice in the area. Uh, they should have been, they were going much too fast. Nobody really debates that. That's just an agreed upon thing. So, but the thing is, with this is the Titanic did have binoculars for the lookouts. Okay. And they were locked in the cabinet of the ship, which also controlled the the crow's nest telephone. Now, this being the maiden voyage of the the ship, you would hear a lot of things. I've read testimony from crews because the ship was so new and they, they brought in a lot of crew at the last moment. The ship was so big people didn't know their way around. People were still trying to figure things out. It was the maiden voyage. They they didn't know what was happening, where a lot of things were and that sort of thing. So it was, uh, the binoculars were locked in the cabinet of, 
uh, a binocular cabinet on the ship. Okay. So that brings us back to David Blair, who was the jilted second officer. Uh, not only because did he know he he did know where the binocular cabinet was, but when he left the ship and arrived home, what did he find in his belongings? No, the key to the locker where the binoculars were stored. Oh my God! Oh boy! Now, to his credit. After all this, I mean, a lot of people would have, you know, taken a walk and thrown, uh, you know, <laughs> thrown the key, uh, yeah. into, you know, into the river or something like that. But he did admit this after the sinking, that he did have the key in his possession. And apparently it was something that did trouble him, obviously, quite a bit. Um, there's been a lot of debate on, you know, whether the binoculars would have made a big difference. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later with the conditions and uh, that that night and the type of iceberg that it was, but something that really did trouble him. And he had a son named Don. And apparently, even though he had like nothing to do with it, he was racked with guilt, you know, for his entire life because of what had happened to his father. And the family did keep the key in its possession. And, and you can see the key online. And in 2007, it was purchased for $90,000 in an auction by a jeweler from China, and it's on display uh, in Nanjing somewhere in China. But you can actually, if you Google the Titanic binocular keys, you can actually see the key that he had in his possession. Riley, wasn't that your nickname in high school, Titanic binocular keys? Just ignore it. <laughs> I, I, I'm getting used to it, yeah. <laughs> What did you do with your hair? I took my hat off. Now you look like that chick from Throw Mama from the Train. Anne Ramsey? Yeah. Owen. Owen. (laughs) (laughs) You look like Anne Ramsey. (laughs) The mother from from Goonies? Owen. Um, I was getting hot. I was wearing my tweed hat, and I, I was warm. Okay. All right. I didn't think you guys cared. Is this better? Look. It's better. With each passing day, I look more and more like Danny DeVito, so I wouldn't worry about it, buddy. And I'm just about to Ben Kingsley. I've got about another week to go, and I'll be Gandhi. There you go. So the, the David Blair thing with the, the the lookout, we talked a little bit about Frederick Fleet. So that brings us uh, back to another thing that I wanted to talk about, which we'll talk a little bit about the iceberg and why it was difficult to see. But there was, there's also a theory out there, which I found very interesting. And I watched a documentary on it and it's a little bit about the conditions, the night of the sinking and why it made it so difficult other than the things I already mentioned for them to see the, the actual iceberg. And there's a guy who went, a British guy named Tim Malton, who went and exa- actually examined like the weather conditions on that night at that, you know, those coordinates and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and came up with this theory. And it's all about basically light refraction. Okay. And he, he said that the Titanic was, and I'll read this, was sailing through an area of thermal inversion, which at that time was about 400 miles off the coast of Newfoundland, where layers of cold air are below an area of warmer air. Thermal inversion causes light to refract abnormally, which can create mirages. Oh. So according to him, that's what happened. Like it, it basically changes the horizon. So when you're looking out and that explains a lot, there was i uh, I'm not sure if you know about the ship, the, the Californian, where, as it relates to the Titanic was the ship that a, a lot of people say was 20 miles away from the Titanic. 
and the rockets were going off and they'd shut down their telegraph, you know, for uh, the night. So uh, they never came to the aid. And if they, they, they could have easily gotten to the Titanic and basically saved everybody. And the captain of uh, the California was a gentleman by the name of Stanley Lord and his, he basically lived his life in shame and his son has been trying, you know, had tried his whole life to get his father's name cleared, but uh, he was actually charged. Uh, there was a trial and everything for basically being negligent by not coming and, and helping. But he said, didn't see the rockets, you know, when we looked at it. So what this light refraction would do would is actually bend light. So it would make things look closer than they are and smaller than they are apparently the way it is. So he looked at it and said, there's no way that that can be the Titanic. It's He knew the Titanic was in the area, but he didn't see the rockets. He said that there's no way it can be the Titanic. That ship is, is too small. And then when the Titanic sank and the lights went out, he actually thought the ship had just sailed away. Oh my God. I always thought that was a bit eerie. I remember as a kid knowing that part of the, cause that would have been a game changer, right? If they'd come to the aid of the Titanic, mm-hmm. that many more people probably would have survived. Correct. Oh, absolutely. But because it was a moonless night and provided like little contrasts and calm sea, it basically masked the line between true and false horizons, according to him and essentially camouflaged the iceberg, which is why, you know, the lookouts are had a hard time seeing it and why, you know, a lot of people say it wasn't David Blair's fault, even with uh, binoculars, they would have had a hard time. Now, the other thing is the iceberg, you see it in the movie and you see any drawings and anything like that. And it's this huge thing covered in snow, this big white thing. But a, a lot of people, the lookouts described the, the iceberg as being gray. And mm. there's a type of iceberg, which is called a growler. And a lot of people think that that's, see, the thing is with icebergs, 90% of them are under the water. They're actually a lot, they're a lot bigger, uh, but 90% of them are under the water. Yes, I knew that. There's those great motivational posters with that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. There are, yeah. You might be happy on the surface, but deep down, <laughs> by the wearies of the world. That's my kind of motivational poster. That's perfect. That's perfect. So the type of iceberg that a lot of people think sunk the Titanic was what was called a growler. Okay. And what type of iceberg that is, is basically due to like things heating up and that sort of thing. Essentially what happens is the iceberg at some point flips over in the water. So the part that's under the water, which is, you know, obviously not covered in snow, uh, is basically clear ice, right? So they think that it flipped over and they they came across a growler, which would have made it tough to see because on a night with no moon, and then you have this, you know, optical illusion, apparently, that people think might have happened. Uh, they're They're basically staring at blackness. They couldn't see it. And when you finally did see it, like I said, it was, you know, 37 seconds until... Bam, it hit. You're right. Now, another interesting thing about it hitting the impact is that a lot of people say that if the Titanic had just not tried to turn away from the iceberg and just hit it head on, like basically stopped its engines and then reversed them, but just hit the iceberg head on, it wouldn't have sank. Because the Titanic had watertight compartments up in, you know, and the bulkheads went to to E-deck. And the Titanic could actually stay afloat, which is the reason they called it unsinkable, with any four 
of the first uh, five watertight compartments flooded. Now, the problem is, is when he turned the ship, he basically exposed the side. And everybody has this idea until they found the wreck that it was like a can opener, like a 300 foot gash going down the side of the ship. Uh, it was not that it was just these little, it knocked off the rivets, sheared off the rivets and punched little holes. The whole damage they estimate was about 15 square feet, but it was the length of six of the water type compartments. And that's what screwed the ship because it essentially was like the best way to describe it. Somebody did is like an ice cube tray. If you put an ice cube tray like that, it, it would just go over the top into the next one and drag the ship down by the head, which eventually pulled it under the water. Makes sense. I don't know if either of you have ever been out to sea, like out to sea, like far from land. I have on a boat on a cloudless night. It's really unbelievably dark. Like it's so impenetrably dark because there's no light pollution from anything but the vessel you're on. It's just really weird. Like the the boat is almost like a lantern. And as far as the lights from the boat extend is as far as you can see. you, You have no idea where land or sea begin. And, and like, it's unbelievable because when the, when it's, it's not cloudy, the stars are so bright that you can see, like you can see something, but when it's cloudy, oh my God, you cannot see anything. Just putting that out there. No doubt. I've never been on a cruise simply because of the fact that I have been a obsessed with the Titanic since I was like five years old. And I'm like, you're never getting me on a boat. There is no way in hell. Uh, so yeah, I've never been on a cruise <laughs> and don't ever, well, don't, don't, don't go. It's boring. It's not your thing. I can tell. I know you well. I will say this. I, I've been to sea, but not at night, or at least I wasn't awake. It was on uh, uh, the ferry from Newfoundland to Nova Scotia. But what I did experience at night is just being on the Ottawa river, which is the, the river that our city is named after. There are wider stretches of the river and being out in the middle of that at night, the optical illusions there. What you were talking about, Riley, not knowing where the water and the land uh, is, is really eerie. And in, in our case, it was actually quite dangerous. I was a kid with my father and he had stayed out too long. And we had a really hard time getting back home uh, because we didn't even know which way was which. We didn't know which side of the river we were on. We were on. Everything bent. Like you felt like you were in a bowl. It was very were weird. Were you in a boat or an inner tube or what? Like what we were, were in on? like a We were in like a speedboat. Like a okay. motorboat. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't mess with water. The sea is uh, a very, yeah. Like uh, like I said, those the three people that we talked about, those crew members that multiple shipwrecks, I just uh, like, you would have had a hard time getting me on the boat for the first one to, you know, to do like the guy who was on five ships. And eventually people were like, mm, he would have kept going. And people were like, yeah, get off the boat. There's no way. So, Going back to the, uh, here's an interesting thing. So probably don't know this. Um, the Titanic was actually on fire the entire time it was at sea. What? Yes. No. I know that uh, that sounds stupid, but allow me to explain, Daniel. Um, so basically, the Titanic was a, a steamer, 
right? Um, it was uh, to power a ship that large, the steam, the coal. They used a, obviously a ton of coal. We talked about uh, the uh, you know the firemen and the stokers uh, earlier. And I have to tell you, one of my most prized possessions is my uncle actually, because when they started found the Titanic and started bringing up valuables and stuff like that, there was a ton of coal on the the sea floor, and they started bringing that up and selling it. And my actually. My uncle actually bought me a piece, so I actually have a piece of coal from the Titanic. Wow. Wait, what? I thought that they were declaring it a monument and leaving everything down there. You're going to prison, Sean. You're going to prison. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Do you know how long it took me to get down there with those water wings? I'm keeping the coal. Okay. You know, Sean, what they say, the RCMP always get their man. And I know uh, a Mountie, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm going to be calling him immediately after the show is done and you should be hearing from Ian shortly. And what proof do you have other than this podcast that will be on the internet, Dan? None. (laughs) Okay. None. So it was actually on fire, a ton of coal. So when the Titanic sailed at that time in the UK, there was a coal strike. So that's why the Olympic uh, and a lot of ships weren't running at the same time. A lot of passengers transferred Mm. over to the Titanic, but I had no idea. Once they left, um, they would. So there was the boiler rooms that they were obviously shoveling the coal into, and then they kept the coal in the bunkers. And apparently, it wasn't uncommon for these, you know, huge mounds or piles of coal to have small fires. Now, because the Titanic had a lot of coal in it, uh, there was a fire, and that saving the Titanic documentary i told you about that's a big part of it there's a a fireman by the name of he survived uh by the name of fred fred barrett frederick barrett who that was one of his jobs was basically trying to contain this fire and you would just keep digging and throwing water on it and that's and he they were doing this for four days now there's some debate as to whether the fire was actually out uh or if it was still burning uh I'm sure when the ship landed on the bottom of the sea, that probably took care of it. Uh, That's not funny. But before then, speculation is that they actually got the fire out the day before the ship sank. But the reason I'm bringing it up is there's also a documentary about this where uh, a gentleman examined a picture of the Titanic and you can see a black smear across the side of the ship. And apparently they had to repaint some of the ship before the ship did set sail. But some of the speculation is because these bunkers were right next to ships now have uh, what's called the double skin. There's basically two parts of the hull. And back then they didn't. It was single. So they say the fact that this bunker was so close to the side of the ship and that this fire was burning basically for three, Mm. four days that it weakened the steel. So mm-hmm. what during the impact, this combined with the fact that it's been confirmed that Harlan and Wolf was actually using rivets that were cheaper. They were skimping on their rivets and the rivets that they had in there on the outside, keeping the ship apart, didn't react well. They were weakened by cold water. So you've got weak rivets outside of the ship and a fire burning inside. And these two things combined to essentially when it it hit it sheared off the heads of the rivets and you had like plates of steel flying and stuff so it almost sounds like this the ship was going to sink if not on this voyage on another see the thing is it probably would have just because of you look at the carpathia which was the ship that picked up the the rescue uh, the survivors you look at the britannic 
the sister ship, you look at the Californian, all of those ships and the Hawk, the the battering ship that hit the, the Olympic, all of those ships were sank in World War One by German U-boats and torpedoes. So if the Titanic had been like, you know, commandeered or commissioned the Lusitania, you know, like even without the war, I it just sounds like there were so many corners cut in the making of that ship that and even the fact that it it wasn't very mobile, you know, it took a long time to turn and mm-hmm. I don't know. But it was a it was a luxury ship. So it was never its intention was not to be a battleship. Its intention was to just go from point A to point B, right? Yeah. Like a cruise ship. Cruise ships are incredibly unresponsive. They hardly like they take forever to turn because that's not their purpose. Yeah. Their purpose is just to make you feel nice while they cross to great distances of water. Exactly. It was just supposed. It was just supposed to be a comfortable ride uh, of luxury, and you know, um, exactly like Radley said, it wasn't meant to be out there, you know, playing chicken with an iceberg. Then, whether or not there was pressure from Bruce Esme and the uh, the White Star Line to, you know, there's that part in the movie where he says, "Imagine the headlines if we get in on Tuesday." You know, wouldn't that be great? And that and some woman said she overheard a conversation about him pressuring the captain to go fast, but he he essentially ignored the ice warnings to the point that the Californian was sitting in an ice field 20 minutes away and stopped and basically sent a message, a telegraph message to the, the Titanic saying, you know, there's a lot of ice and the, the wireless operator from the Titanic told them to shut the hell up and leave them alone because they had so many messages coming in for their passengers that I don't have time to deal with this crap. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Did that guy live? Uh, there was two wireless operators. It was Harold Bride and Jack Thayer. And one of them lived. One of them died. I can't remember if it was the guy who lived or died that basically told him to, you know, get, oh, get that man. home. But um, – but I mean, even before that, Smith had, you know, Captain Smith had, he had had plenty of warning. I mean, there was, there was just no reason for them to be going that fast. Uh, and unfortunately it can't be confirmed if that was his choice or, or pressure from above, but either way it cost a lot of innocent people their lives. So Sean recommended course of action. Would it best thing to have been just to stop the engines and wait it out till morning? I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. Or be going a lot slower. Like, you have to figure the the ship, the Mauritania, that held the blue ribbon for speed at that time during the day. You know, is going twenty six knots. You know, the Titanic at night in an ice field was doing twenty one. I believe. Right. Right. I believe, I'm not sure if they were they were they were going fast. They were going way too fast, and especially when you know they knew there were icebergs. They know they knew there was no moon. You know, you don't have enough lifeboats for everybody. It was it was a lot of you know it was uh, a lot of hubris. It was uh, a lot of ego involved. That just the ship. You know, that too many people believing their own press. You know, the shipbuilder uh, magazine had wrote that the Titanic was unsinkable, and too many people believed that. You know, and yeah, look how it ended. So, so yeah, the the icing. So that's uh, that's. Uh, Sorry, the the fire thing was an interesting thing, and there's a documentary about that as well. And you can see the photograph with the uh, the actual black smear online. But I I found that very interesting. Um, so there's a lot of theories that 
that contributed heavily to uh, you know to the damage. The damage, the extent of the damage would have been less uh, had that not been happening. So those are uh, kind of the you know in terms of the crew and the events and the optical illusion. Uh, that's kind of the gist of what I was going to talk about. But there's a lot there's a lot of other things in terms of any UFOs, Sean. <laughs> God, any seances on board? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, right. there, was a, there was actually a seance aboard the on the iceberg. Two people got off <laughs> with a table and had a seance on the iceberg. True, true or false? There false. were false. Oh, there's a question first. Okay, go. There were three elemental gods on board the ship, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. trying desperately to uh, resurrect uh, their fallen general leader, and a truck driver mm-hmm. and his friend mm-hmm. ended up thwarting. Uh, this god riley you seem really upset with the what uh, the question i'm asking you just don't listen to dan if you if you if you if you engage if you look engaged he'll just keep going that is the plot of steel magnolias dan um so i'm I'm not falling for this um was captain smith allergic to bees and was he stung by a bee see he was a beekeeper and was tending to those bees when he should have been on the bridge. Yeah, see, I heard that. You know, you know, you laugh, you laugh and say, you know, seances, blah, blah, blah. But it was the turn of the century. And uh, mysticism and seances were hugely in vogue. So you never know. Majorly. Um, and there's uh, Houdini was uh, a big um, debunker of seances. He used to go around it. That was one of the things he enjoyed doing, was going around to seances and proving that the mediums or whatever were were full of shit, basically. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, you know, that type of stuff was, was massive. Back cool. Then. I didn't yeah. know that. So I'll tell you uh, a little bit of trivia, some cool things. One thing I want to talk about is a local connection when it comes to, I'm sure there's more than a few local connections when it comes to the Titanic uh, because it affected a lot of people. But these are uh, something that I always found pretty interesting and I thought you might as well and maybe your listeners well as well. So one of the people who died on the Titanic was a gentleman by the name of Charles Melville Hayes. And he was the president of what was called the Grand Trunk Railroad at the time. Uh, So very, very wealthy. The thing that he's famous for, other than dying on the Titanic in Ottawa, is he is the man who paid for and built the Chateau Laurier. Ah. Which is an iconic hotel right next to our parliament buildings. Exactly. So he wanted to fashion it after the, the hotels in Europe at the time. Uh, so it uh, has a very European feel, at least when it was built uh, to to what was existing there. So he went over to Europe to purchase furniture for his new hotel and bought a bunch of furniture for the dining room and basically was bringing it back on the Titanic when the the ship hit the iceberg and sank. So the hotel was actually supposed to open on the 26th of April. The Titanic sank on the 15th of April, so it was delayed until the, I believe, the 12th of June, 1912. And there was supposed to be this big, lavish, you know, ceremonial thing with Wilfrid Laurier there. And it was supposed to be a big deal for Ottawa. And because of his death and because they had to get new furniture for the dining room, I guess, uh, basically they had postponed the opening of the Chateau Laurier. So wait a sec. So at the bottom of the ocean is a whole bunch of furniture that was intended for that hotel. 
in the hole. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. And he purchased it in London, created and placed in the, the cargo hold of the Titanic. Now, which is what is pretty cool about this. If you go into the Chateau Laurier, uh, you have to look for it. And I've done it a bunch of times whenever I have people, because we live in Ottawa, come visit and they want a tour. I get sick of, this is the parliament buildings. Here's the national art galleries. I always bring them to the Chateau Laurier. And if you go in, um, if you know the Chateau Laurier, there's an exit that basically opens up onto right by Sussex, where the uh, right, mm-hmm. where the Moxies, yeah. I guess, is now right by the American Embassy. But there's just these stairs. Yeah, and if you go down there, the pool's there, right? So right. Yes, I know exactly yeah, where it if is. If you keep going around the corner, there's kind of this dark corner, and it's not. There's nothing really there to bring attention or call attention to it. But if you walk just a few feet towards those doors that go up and out of the building, there is a huge portrait of Charles Melville Hayes with a plaque in the middle. And next to it is a huge painting of the Titanic. And it says, you know, the owner of the the Chateau Laurier, Charles Melville Hayes, perished, you know, August 15th, 1912 uh, on the sinking of the Titanic. So... I always thought that was pretty cool. Now, another thing that's kind of neat is because it's a Chateau Laurier, he commissioned a stone carving, like a sculpture, basically, to be done by this French sculptor by the name of Paul Chevre. And it was a a bust of Wilfred Laurier. Um, It was done in France, and the guy who did it, that sculptor, essentially came with Charles Melville Hayes on the Titanic back over. But for some reason, I don't know why there isn't any documentation really about this. He decided to put the bust on a different ship. So he got on the ship and he actually survived. Charles Melville Hayes died. Uh, The sculptor actually died a couple of years later. He had survivor's guilt apparently as well. But the bust actually arrived on the ship and arrived back in Canada and is still to this day in the lobby of the Chateau Laurier. Hmm. I had no idea. Almost went down. And one of the things I love about the Chateau Laurier is when you go in there, it's still very, it it really does feel like, you know, a moment kind of frozen in time. It still has that, that feeling of, you know, I love going in there with a, like a book and just kind of sitting in one of the darker rooms on one of the couches and just reading because it actually, I don't know why, but it, makes me think of the Titanic, especially because of Charles Melville Hayes. But yeah, it's something I used to enjoy doing. So I guess my dad was right. I am a nerd. Well, it would, it would, it, it has some of the same decor, exactly. you know, an artistic style that would have been on the ship for sure. Well, it's a throwback to that age, right? Isn't that called the Gilded Age? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a throwback to that time of opulence and beauty. I mean, there's so many hotels in New York that are like that still, where you walk in and you're like, wow, this is what, it must have felt like then it's still feels like it now. I mean, I love those buildings too. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing, it's an amazing feeling. They don't, we don't do Travel that anymore. Are we like don't that. build that way. <laughs> you, you do feel that when you go to places like the Royal York or Chateau Frontenac in Quebec city, they're all kind of the, they're all, they're all the same. They're all owned by the same people now, I think. Yeah, yeah Fairmont. Fairmont. Exactly. Yeah, very much so. And uh, and I love that. And yes, it was called the Gilded Age. And the, you know, the Titanic sinking was actually uh, one of the, the things that is described as, as being the death of the Gilded Age. Because things really did change in not only with safety measures on the ship, but uh, just in society, uh, the way it is, the way it was. Uh, things, there was, it really had an effect on 
I guess the, you know, the ego that people had. Well, if you look at how much the world changed from like, let's say 1900 to 1950, it's unfucking believable what society endured. Two major wars, the Great Depression, which changed so much for so many people. I mean, the amount of the the things that society went through in that 50 year period is just extraordinary. But you know, what's remarkable too, though, you say all that is how little some things have changed. And we're seeing that now with the pandemic where, for example, it's the the countries or the people even in wealthy and developed countries that are at the bottom end of, you know, the the societal economic chain that are dying more. You know, we're lucky to live in a country with uh, socialized health care. Everyone's treated the same, but certainly in other countries, that's not the case. And, um, the you know, the deaths are much higher amongst poorer people than they are certainly with the rich. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, sure. Hey, can I tell you one quick fun thing? I don't know if if either of you two had this as a kid. I had Titanic the board game where essentially you played uh, a porter and you had to go and try and collect and save the guests that you were dealt. You had to go to their rooms. And anytime you rolled a one or a six, the boat would actually tilt. So it was like, it was like three Jesus. parts. It was a sky a water and then this boat that sat in the middle and it would tilt. And eventually you had to make a decision to either try to continue to save your guests or to get to a lifeboat. And if you didn't, then you were dead. And once you got into a lifeboat, then you had to try and get to the Carpathia, which was at like the bottom right hand corner of the, it was nuts. Crazy that they would make a That's in such I bad know. taste. It's such bad taste. I did not have that, but I can tell you if someone gave me that game right now, I would be up until tomorrow morning playing it. Okay. So I'll, I'll try to wrap it up. I'll try to get to the end here. One other thing I wanted to talk about a Canadian connection was, uh, so once the Titanic went down, there's a big, you know, uh, maritime museum in Halifax that has a lot of, uh, Titanic memorabilia and stuff like that. Uh, and Halifax was kind of instrumental in after the sinking, there was a ship that was, uh, hired by the white star line called the, the Mackie Bennett out of Halifax. And what it was responsible for was going out to where the ship sank and retrieving the bodies of the, you know, basically all the dead bodies. I love the fact that all the ships from Britain are like the Lusitania, the this, the that, and fucking Canadian ship, the Mackie Bennett. Like, that's just so Canada right there. (laughs) Exactly. What was the one, what was the one from uh, the Arnold, um, uh, from the the blimp uh, episode, there was a ship called the. You wrote I it. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. It was three weeks ago. I know. That's the way my brain works. Anyway, it was a funny name. So the, the Mackie Bennett was hired, went out, and over like five days a week, basically recovered over. I mean, at the fifteen hundred people that that went down with the ship, they were able to recover about three hundred bodies. Uh, but the thing that's kind of interesting about that was the main person who was doing the funeral director who was handling all the identification of the bodies was a, a guy by the name of John Snow. You know nothing, John Snow. There's a couple of uh, Game of Thrones, uh, you know, parallels with the, the Titanic. I'll tell you another one in a moment. But John Snow and Company Funeral Home And what's interesting about that is because of the amount of bodies and how quickly they had to get them back and and locate them, uh, he basically devised how bodies were in a in a situation like this, a tragedy, were identified 
and remains and stuff. So basically, he was the one who, I'll just read you this. Each body was a covered piece of canvas with a stenciled number on it was attached and a ledger, a description entry was made on the numbered page corresponding to the assigned number, hair color, height, weight, age, obvious markings such as scars, tattoos, or birthmarks, uh, details of physical description, um, and then personal belongings, addresses on letters, names on passports, number of passage tickets, legends of key tags, stuff like the money, all that sort of thing. Up until then, they basically found a body and they're like, okay, well, you know, whatever. And he basically set the the precedent or, you know, the bar in terms of going forward if a body was found, how it was identified and how information was gathered and delivered to other people like families and that sort of thing so they knew i think before that they were just basically just you know wrapping a a body in canvas and throwing it back into the water Mm. and uh he actually he actually changed that so uh, i found that quite interesting one i'm not going to talk about that it's about a child dying one of the first bodies discovered was a, a child who was for years was unidentified and was basically identified a few years back um they finally found out who this kid was but uh it had a real effect on the uh the crew members of the the Mackie Bennett and when they brought the child back uh those crew members actually 75 officers all chipped in and bought uh paid for the funeral of this unidentified child and a headstone a monument um and a white casket flowers the whole thing and uh to this day that monument in that uh that graveyard in Halifax is still the the largest one related to a death with Titanic. Hmm. Oh, wow. I have to go, next time I'm in Halifax, I have to go find that. Aside from that, I already told you guys the twin thing. Um, some other interesting trivia, some things strange. So there was an actress and leave it, you know, we all know about actors and egos and that sort of thing. There was an actress by the name of Dorothy Gibson on the Titanic uh, and she survived. And the first movie about the Titanic was starring her and it was made 20 day, 29 days after the sinking. Oh, she made a silent film about her experience on the Titanic and even wore the same clothes. Oh, that's weird. Not weird, like spooky, but just weird that she would do that. Yeah, she wore the same clothes as she was wearing the night the ship sank and made a movie 29 days after the sinking. So leave it leave it to an actress to, yeah. <laughs> to, to do something like that. Um, there was an iceberg photographed by a ship called the SMS Prince Aldebert. Uh, which was uh, photographed a few days after uh, the Titanic, not a few days, the next day after the Titanic with a smear of red paint on it. So a lot of people think that that may have been the iceberg that sank the Titanic. So I'll tell you two other quick, quick, quick stories. They're just even little tidbits here, but um, the Titanic You know, we haven't really talked about the wreck. It's been sitting there, but the Titanic is actually eating itself right now. It's forming these, what are are called rusticles. There's a bacteria there that that is actually destroying the ship. And they're saying by the year 2030 that the Titanic actually will no longer be there. It it will just become a big rust spot on the the bottom of the ocean that will disappear. The currents, Mm -hmm. it will collapse onto itself. And then the currents down there will will actually uh, just take the ship away and the only way you'll know is by the coordinates and a very large rust stain on the bottom of the ocean 
Oh no! Can they not bring any? Can they bring uh, some they of have it been up? Bringing then? up pieces, uh, larger pieces. There's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, artifacts and stuff like that from it. You know, uh, that they have brought up to kind of preserve because they were very hesitant to do it before because it was a memorial, obviously, and considered a graveyard. Uh, but now that you know, once this bacteria was discovered, and I think they've been a little more open to it because they they want to have something you know left over um from it because it it will be gone eventually well in a way i don't know in a way that's more uh beautiful like if it, it, they're 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 finally swept out of that grave and then they become part of the greater ocean and i i don't know I, in a way that's well the bones are long gone right there's there's people that say they think there's bodies within but i mean james cameron has made over 30 dives to the titanic and he said he's never seen a body i don't see how they possibly could be but there's lots of evidence of because of stuff like leather stuff that's treated and that there's two shoes beside each other and like a jacket where you could see it's where a body landed essentially uh, and that would have been its final resting place but the body oh. obviously is is no longer there uh so there's a lot of stuff like that yeah the only way i could see it if 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 someone's somehow managed and this probably wouldn't be the case anymore because of the integrity of the halls gone but if they managed to be in a sealed compartment yeah that didn't have the water seeping in but that wouldn't be the case anymore yeah they would have de- de- would have deteriorated by now yeah um other thing the the lifeboats nobody ever really talks about the lifeboats the lifeboats from the titanic after you think they would have been like a huge thing that people would have wanted to you know, preserve or keep they, nobody knows what happened to the lifeboats from the Titanic. They were either destroyed or recommissioned to other boats. Well, wouldn't they have just left them at sea? No, because they all uh, the Carpathia brought them all up. Oh, they did. Yeah. They, because they brought the boats up with the survivors. There was one lifeboat. Apparently it was one of the collapsible boats was found a month later, something like 300 miles away from where the ship sank, and there was three bodies inside of it. Oh. Terrible. I know. Okay, I'll talk about two actors right now. David Warner. Do you know, Riley, you know David Warner? You remember the movie Time After Time? The H.G. Wells. Why, why are you asking Riley and not me? Why are you assuming... Why are you assuming that I don't know who he is? Because you're young. The Time Machine is the H.G. Yes, Wells book. And time after time, H.G. Wells is a character in the movie. Do you know the movie, Dan? I have no idea. Okay. So basically, H.G. Wells wrote The Time Machine. And in this movie, he actually builds a time machine. And he finds out that one of his best friends comes over to his house is Jack the Ripper. Jack the Ripper hops in the time machine and goes to 1979 San Francisco. Uh, so David Warner played Jack the Ripper in that. He's He's been in a bunch of stuff. But in the movie Titanic, he was the guy that the villain Billy Zane, the Cal jerk, he was his kind of man assistant, his manservant, basically. The guy who did all his dirty work. Oh, I know this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've seen him in a million. Yeah, he's like a B kind of guy. You see him in a lot of shit. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing he's famous for is he actually died on the Titanic in that movie, but he also played a famous character in that SOS Titanic movie. He played Lawrence Beasley, who was a second class passenger and survived. So he actually, as an actor, was on the Titanic twice. Once he died, once he lived. Interesting. And I'll tell you one final story and then we'll wrap it up because I've had you guys. I got two questions though, so we're not wrapping it up. I'll wrap it up when you tell me to. Okay. Tell me your last tidbit. 
So my last is one of, I told you my, one of my prized possessions other than my book is that piece of coal. But here's a, an interesting story. So I was doing a, a TV show about six or seven years ago and was on it for quite a while. And one of the assistant directors on it, uh, we were shooting one night at three o'clock in the morning. And uh, he, we started talking and we're talking about first jobs and that sort of thing. And uh, I said, so how did you get into this? And he said, well, I was living in Mexico. Um, I was a concierge at a, a hotel and a woman came in one day and was asking a bunch of things. We hit it off. And later that day, she shows up at the desk and says, you know, you're very good at your job. I really like your personality and that sort of thing. Would you ever, have you ever considered working in film? And he said, no, I'm pretty comfortable here. And she said, well, I like you. If you change your mind, here's my card. Give me a call. And he's like, okay. She was an American. So a couple of weeks later, something happens at the hotel. He all of a sudden doesn't love his job so much and decides he would like to take her up on the opportunity. So he calls her up and she says, okay, come out. And not a lot of people know this, but the movie Titanic was filmed in Mexico. And it's notorious because they just left everything there. Yeah. So it was filmed in this huge tank and they built one side of it and they would just change the perspective and that sort of thing when they filmed. But uh, so he shows up and the movie is Titanic. So his first job ever, he was a, a PA, a production assistant on Titanic. And so when he told me this, being the Titanic, you know, buff fan, whatever that I am, I I lost I was like, oh my God. Like immediately looking for his name in the credits and all that sort of thing. Talk to him about it. And you know, a couple of weeks goes by and we're getting closer to wrapping this series. And he shows up one day and he goes, I have something for you. And I want you to have, because from the sounds of it, it would mean more to you than it would to me. And I'm like, okay. And he pulls this plastic bag and he pulls this out of the bag and this is one of my it's oh cool his crew jacket oh my god from the movie titanic that was filmed and it has where it was filmed in mexico right there rosarita uh, uh mexico but he gave me his actual crew jacket that all the crew members uh, oh. were given when they wrapped and Jesus. i have this and keep this in my closet and it's one of my favorite it means uh, a lot to me so it was very very cool of, of him seriously too. very cool yeah. oh my god i have questions for you well first of all that movie sure. you know I, I watch that movie from time to time and you, i i just forward it to when it starts to sink yeah i, I forward it. it to the iceberg because you know i, I always want to wish i could run into james cameron and go couldn't you've written something better it deserved a better story it deserved a better story than that it did kate winslet says it too they all say it. They were like, it deserved a better story than that. It deserved something a bit more grand, something more beautiful. But my God, he did a good job of thinking. It was, it's amazing to watch. Anyway, this is what I want to ask you. Sure. What about Aftermath? Have any ships sailed in that area and seen shit? Has there been any ghost sightings? Is there not any, like, it's like the Overlook Hotel. Is there not any spiritual residual energy? Like, has no one seen a ghost Titanic when they sailed through there? Has there never, is, is there nothing? So, yes, there has been some, not like a ghost ship or anything like that, but there has been reports of submersibles. When they're examining the wreck or have been in the area and ships that have passed over having interference with their radios and one. Okay. One even reported hearing, I guess, a phantom SOS call. Uh, and one of the things that the Titanic uh, is famous for, it was the Marconi radio, the telegraph system that did it. The Titanic was the first ship to ever use the SOS distress call. 
there was another call I called CQD is what it was called, which meant there was a ship in distress that required assistance. And then they had introduced this new one called uh, SOS, which some people say say it stands for Save Our Souls or, you know, uh, that sort of thing. But Titanic was the first ship to use it. And there have been there has been a ship in the area that uh, reported hearing that that distress mm. call all these years. Later. There, there's been other uh, um, orbs of light or like power around the, uh, the, the, uh, the sinking site where the wreck is. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been, there's been uh, reports of that from a local standpoint there, there have been reports that Charles, Charles Melville Hayes, who the Chateau Laurier, that his, that his spirit actually haunts the hotel because uh, I know they do those ghost tours. I haven't actually been on one of them in Ottawa, but uh, apparently because he never got to, this was his baby was this hotel. Like he was very, mm-hmm. very proud of it. And then he never got to see the opening. So there's reports of his restless spirit uh, wandering the halls of the Chateau Laurier. So, Cameron, how long does it, I, I, I talked about this with Dan, and I just want to get a, a clearer picture because you'll know. How mm-hmm. long does it take them to get down there? A long time. Uh, the drop to the Titanic, because uh, they have to drop weight as they're going, is apparently about three hours to get down. Oh, there. it's that short. Well, I thought I thought it was like eight hours. Oh, so okay. Because of the the pressure and all that, obviously yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the pressure is, is to get down there and then uh, to come up. Yeah, you're looking at something like that. But uh, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty. Uh, it, it's about three three and a half hours to get down there. Uh, they talked about at some point if you were rich, you could pay money to actually, you know, go down there. That was something they were going to offer before the wreck. As much as I love the Titanic, claustrophobia wise, and just uh, there's that scene from Raise the Titanic where the submersible uh, implodes and that sort of. Uh, there's there's no way I could do that. There's no way I could sit in one of those tiny things for three hours and drop no. into total darkness. No. As much as I would love to see the Titanic, I couldn't. Are they still? diving on it that way it's still going on now like is it still a yeah a thing? it's not it's not as frequent because you know they were actually landing on the ship they would actually settle on the ship and damaging it uh you know oh. and along the process so there, there was that um and then just you know the the disruption when they're actually down there uh you know because it is becoming more and more fragile uh it's just not good for it so uh i'm pretty sure it's regulated now uh regu- not like not that anybody could ever just go down there you know whatever they wanted uh <laughs> unless they had a submersible which not a lot of people do but yeah it's 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 definitely fewer and far between and they are noticing like just the mm. the absolute deterioration of the ship is increasing quite rapidly so that's why they're saying by 2030 last question i promise absolutely last question so when they were uh when these dives first started to happen and they first found it was when they first realized it had broken in half correct yes so there were many 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 passengers throughout the years who reported see the ship essentially broke in half almost right after the lights went out so they tried to keep the uh the lights on as long as they could the lights went out and then there were reports of like a huge crashing and cracking and like essentially the boilers you know went through the front like you know those things were massive and there was 
it was just a huge cacophony of sound, basically. And many people said that it split. But a lot of people did not believe that. They they did not think it was possible, which is why you have books like, you know, Raise the Titanic, which have the ship in one piece. Right. And many people thought that the ship was in one piece. So the official confirmation that it had, in fact, broken in half was, was once it was... Uh, discovered. And I remember very vividly watching uh, a documentary with this guy uh, whose name is Ken Ken Marshall. Um, and he, if you've ever seen any book about the Titanic, the wreck or anything like that, he does all the paintings. He does all these amazing illustrations of the Titanic and he just absolutely loves it. And there's an interview I saw with him when he first in 1985, when Robert Ballard had found the Titanic, when he first, they went with the cameras and were taking it because of the darkness down there, taking pictures piece by piece by piece, and eventually had to piece it all together so they could see what the wreck of the bow and the stern looked like. And they were bringing these pictures to him so he could do drawings. And I just remember vividly seeing this interview with him when he just realized the devastation of the wreck, like what what bad shape it was in. And his voice kind of quivers and, you know, you get you get hear the lump in his throat that he's just like, it's when I realized and he says, my, my ship, my beautiful ship, you know, it was just because in his mind, it was still this beautiful thing until they had found it. Can you imagine, though, being on the vessel that found it for the first time? Like, can you imagine what that moment must have been like for those people? So, yeah, it was Robert. Bow- so Dan would be interested in this because it's kind of a war thing. But essentially, the, the U.S. Navy had uh, sent Robert Ballard to find two sunken submarines, a submarine called the Thresher and the Scorpion, which they could not find. It sunk uh, in World War II. And so he basically said, if I go, Robert Ballard said, if I go out and I find these things, if I have any left over time, can I look for the Titanic? Ah, uh. They didn't expect him to find the the two subs so quickly, so he did. So he had a bunch of time, and he went, and he actually found uh, the ship. But he had just gone to bed but was not sleeping when uh, the sonar uh, had passed over one of the boilers. And somebody took the picture and saw it, and they went down and said, you better get him quick. So he went down, brought him up, and you can actually oh, see wow. the footage. Somebody captured it on camera. The Find it on the oh. internet of the first time of him standing there in kind of like his jumpsuit with his hands in his pockets when he realizes it's the boiler from the Titanic. And he's just like, holy, he's like, son of a bitch, holy shit. He's just like, you know, they oh. realized they had found it. Moment. That's one of those uh, moments that, that has uh, stayed with me. I didn't read as much as you did, but I, I remember having a Scholastics book on Titanic, I think that has the drawings that you're referring to. Yeah. Um, and I remember watching on TV Ballard. I mean, I, I, I know what Ballard looks like and, and that, you know, stems back from, mm-hmm. you know, the 1980s. And I remember just how eerie and I always found it extremely spooky that they found this ship and it wasn't because of go. It just, it's so many people died horrifically um the fear that they must have been feeling mm-hmm. so to find this ship that has haunted so many of our dreams uh you know it was a really big moment to be alive yeah. to witness 
it was pretty so the reaction is is very genuine and and he talks about the moment and this isn't captured on camera when they're all like cheering and they're ecstatic that they found the ship and then uh it was about 10 after 11 when they found the ship uh at night and someone stopped them and kind of said uh looked around the room and said you know titanic sinks in 20 minutes like it was basically drawing attention to the fact that they were almost at the exact time of night, two o'clock in the morning. So it was almost uh, when the ship actually, yeah. you know, went under the water for the last time. So they actually went out uh, onto the deck of the ship and had like uh, a ceremony and, uh, you know, kind of paid their respects to uh, the, the people that were lost and stopped the celebrating when they realized. I think that's when it kind of hit them, the impact of... Mm-hmm. Uh, of that and uh, uh, kind of related, but a uh, different topic. There's a great movie if you want to see the wreck uh, that James Cameron did again because he kept diving after. I know, I know he did. Yeah, he was, and he made this great movie called Ghosts of the Abyss, yes. which is uh, uh, about the wreck and Bill Paxton's in it and that sort of thing. But there's one moment that is very haunting as well where. They're exploring the wreck, you know, going about their day and the weather's getting bad and stuff. And then they're like, okay, we, we better go up. So we're going up. So they, they do the journey to the surface and they get out and, you know, the, the crew members are kind of, you know, pale and, you know, very kind of, you know, they're, something's not right. Okay. And they get out and that dive was September the first or September the eleventh, two thousand and one, and while they were down there, nine eleven had happened, wow. uh, and they come they come out, and people on the ship obviously knew what had happened, but hadn't told the people in the submersibles. So you see James Cameron get out of the ship and Bill Paxton, and they they kind of tell them like what had happened, you know, in New York and and in the states. And I miss Bill Paxton. I do too. What a great actor. Yeah, and he's he made that really strange, quirky film. Remember, he plays that father. It was just so fucking unsettling. Frailty. Is it he's crazy and he's got his kids working with him? Yeah. Yeah. Matthew McConaughey plays the grown up version of one of the kids at the police station. Okay. He's the guy who goes out. He's a small part, but he's the one who basically tells the story. But yeah, Bill Pack. Such a good movie. Yeah. So good. Yeah. And he, and he will only ever be remembered for Twister. <sighs> or, you know, aliens. Come on, man. Sean, thank you so much for this. I'm going to I'm going to say that you are like pretty damn if you're not an expert, I don't know what you are, because the stuff that you were pulling here and a lot of the things we were asking you, I don't even think you had notes in front of you that you knew really interesting stuff and a very, you know, so many different angles that you explored on this. I feel like I know way more about the Titanic than I ever I didn't realize there was so much I didn't know. So thanks so much for coming on. And it's uh, it was fun to have you uh, not just because you know your stuff, but you know, we kind of like you. So that was great. Come back. Well, I, you know, I would love to, and there's other things, you know, that, uh, that I'm interested in, not quite as much as the Titanic, but I would, you know, love to do research on, uh, other topics and, you know, join you guys from time to time. But, uh, regardless, I will continue listening. Uh, I look forward to each week when you guys release, uh, a new episode and, uh, you know, I, I honestly, genuinely mean mean it when I say I'm a, a total fan. I, lo- I love what you guys do, and I, I listen uh, every weekend, not just because we're friends, but because it's you guys are just it's something cool that you guys have uh, you know, that you guys are doing. I just I'm a, I love it. That just made my night. Thank you. Yeah, we should let these poor people go, folks. Thanks again for listening to the weird. 
You know the drill. If you're a fan, subscribe to the show and uh, rate us. Let people know about our show. It's the, the, the nicest thing you can do for us. Get in touch with us. If you have a show idea, you can always let us know as well. Ladies, gentlemen, good night, and thank you for listening. I was so scared when you said ladies it was going to be something weird, but uh, saved. Good night. <laughs>